0: For the end of year holidays, I am digging into the archives and I'm pulling out some of the two pages conversations that I loved. And I think that will set you up both for the year that's past, but also for the year ahead. And so this is the first interview for the new year. And I am revisiting my conversation with Dave Stukoyak. Now, he is the host of a wonderful podcast, Coaching for Leaders. I've been on it, um, I think, three times, maybe four times. Um, He's a wonderful interviewer. So if you want to hear the tables being turned and somebody interviewing me, I would go and search the archives of uh, Coaching for Leaders. But for now, please do enjoy episode 94. It's called Who Do You Serve? with Dave reading from one of the all-time self-help classics. Enjoy. It has taken me an hour to find this quote and it doesn't exactly say what I thought it would say, but you know what? <laughs> I'm going to read it anyway. I, I know all about sunk cost, but I'm just going to read this because I think I can make it work. It's from Albert Schweitzer, who is the winner of the 1952 Nobel Peace Prize. He won that prize for his work with lepers and victims of sleeping sickness in Central Africa. And in this quote, he talks about the power of small and obscure deeds. And he says that these were far more powerful than those more public acts that receive acclaim. The public acts, he says, and this is the metaphor I had half remembered, were like the foam on the waves of the deep ocean. Now, I know the temptation is to linger on the wisdom and the power of the idea of small and obscure deeds. And we'll come back to that another time, I'm sure. But I'm going to steal his metaphor and nudge it over into the world of leadership. Because in leadership, what's trendy comes and goes. It ebbs and it flows. You know, there's always a guru and a model and language and a lens for the moment. But I'm always curious when I think about leadership, what's just foam on the waves? And what about leadership is the sinuous currents of the deep ocean? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. It's a podcast I listen to all the time. It's one I've been a guest on four times. And quite frankly, I've actually stolen guests from this podcast to invite them onto my podcast. And it is Coaching for Leaders, hosted by Dave Stachowiak. And this podcast is the engine and the portal for his Coaching for Leaders Academy, which helps managers and executives and business owners develop leadership excellence. Now, Dave is someone who I think, just to carry on my metaphor here, is a masterful surfer of the waves. He knows the foam, he knows the waves, but he also knows the deep ocean. But it's taken him a while to get there because, you know, Dave was able to get a really good job right out of school and started management early on. But I'm not sure he totally rose to the challenge.
1: I mean, I I told myself a story that I was doing fine early on, as a lot of us do. But when I look back, I realize I was a mediocre manager starting off. And I was fortunate
0: to land a job with Dale Carnegie. Even if you've never read the books or attended the many, many workshops and trainings, you probably heard of Dale Carnegie, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People. At the very least, you've probably been influenced by their work through people around you who have heard of his stuff. That book, that job, and the career that came out of it
1: changed my life in so many wonderful ways because I learned the importance of relationships. Over my inclination previously, which was to try to be the smartest person in the room and to be right and all of those things that really are insignificant compared to the importance of relationships.
0: So, after winning friends and influencing people for 15 years at Carnegie, Dave moved on to put what he'd learned there to work in building his own tribe, starting with his podcast. So, I was curious to know just how his podcast had shaped him through the years. Wow. Um,
1: So it's been more than 10 years now. And so it's been a long journey. I am a, I think I'm a really slow learner, Michael. Um, (laughs) You know, I like you're supposed to put on your resume, like I'm a quick learner. I, I really feel like I tack the other way. But when I get something, I get it. Yeah. And the thing that I got at some point along the way is I read the book by Eric Reese, and I'm blanking on the title. Uh, the, uh the, the
0: the lean the, the lean um, startup,
1: yeah. lean startup. That's it. That's all I needed was lean. Um, and I read that book uh, years ago, and I realized that I was doing myself a disservice in my life and in my career of trying to have everything figured out mm. in advance, and not just starting with something. And when I started the podcast, it was a hobby. This was never intended to be a full-time career. It was going to be part of my portfolio to be a professor someday. That was the initial goal. And and so I didn't have, I only had two hours a week to work on it. Right. And so I had to make it a minimum viable product, as Eric Reese would call it. And I focused on just three things early on. Like if I could just do these three things at a minimum that that would be something that would be useful to me but it would also be useful to someone else listening and if i did that 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 would be great and that practice and that blessing it turns out of only having 2 hours a week to do it got me started to do something imperfect right and i learned by doing something imperfect that actually that's better <laughs> than having something planned out <laughs> and figured out for years the software right. people have figured this out for a while but i hadn't and that, for me, was is a game-changer now on how I do almost everything. I do things small, I test them, I make small shifts consistently, and that's totally different than how I handled my career prior right. to that.
0: What did you have to let go of to be able to move into this kind of rapid iteration, minimum viable product mindset?
1: Well, a bit of perfectionism for sure. Mm. And also a lot of years of graduate school and <laughs> learning that because I was taught, as so many of us are in our higher education system, that, you know, A is good, A minus is okay, and anything else is, you know, disappointment. Yeah, your family,
0: your teacher, your heritage, your lineage. You're letting everybody down.
1: <laughs> right. Especially like high achieving folks like you. I think I could put yeah. you and I both in this category of who did a lot of school of like, okay, I kind of had to unlearn a lot of that. And there's some Mm -hmm. amazing blessings that came out of my education. I'm so grateful for it. But that part, I really had to unlearn. Like, no, it's actually not a good thing to hit A's every time Um, because either you're missing tons of opportunity or you're not challenging yourself enough. And that for sure, I've had to unlearn.
0: Yeah. I mean, having been doing a podcast that's focused on management and leadership for ten years, um, you know, as you've grown and changed as a, a leader and a manager, do you feel that the the concept of leadership and management is also changing?
1: I think we like to think it's changing a lot, <laughs> but I think right. in reality, the core principles of leadership and management haven't changed that much. And as right. I look back on how to Win Friends and Influence People. Coming back to it for this episode, yeah, and read through the book. I think this book was written almost 100 years ago, right? How much has not changed about <laughs> human behavior, yeah. and 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 in and, and interestingly, like I see because I read a lot of books as you do and interview a lot yeah. of folks, I see echoes of Carnegie and Stephen Covey and so many right. of these you know folks who have been for you know, decades and decades we've been reading their work in so many places. And our language has changed. The context has changed. But I think the core, I always think of leadership and management. I I love um, John Cotter's distinction of them, of management is handling complexity, leadership's answering the question of change, and then people are sort of like overlapped between those, right? Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that's changed very much Mm -hmm. in in the last decade or two. The world has changed around us, but those core skills at their heart so yeah. similar.
0: You know, I, I often talk about my work being old wine in new bottles. You know, I don't mm. I don't really feel like I'm inventing a new discipline. I'm just trying to articulate it in a way that might be resonant to a, a a modern ear, or give it language that might give people a way of picking it up in a way they hadn't been able to pick it up or use it before. Because um, I do think the the basics are often pretty much the same. <laughs> like, focus on the work that matters, focus on the people that matter. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I, I had a conversation
1: recently with Miriam Wilkins, who hosts the Coaching Real Leaders podcast That's from right. HBR. And, and she's been
0: a guest on this podcast as well.
1: Oh, good, good. So uh, we, were, we decided to put together an episode of, what are we hearing right now mm. on the trends going on from leaders? And as we put together the list, it was really striking to me of how the list could have looked like a list from 10 years ago right, or 20 years ago. The one difference was DE&I in a good mm. way. I think that's yeah. much more present on so many leaders' minds in a much better way than it was 10 or 15 exactly. years ago. Agreed. But outside of that, so many of the other principles were so similar. Uh, we keep coming back to handling these core questions of human relations that Carnegie challenged us with 100 years ago.
0: Dave, how do you keep yourself fresh and engaged and growing in the work that you do? And I'll tell you the kind of the the thing behind the question. So I did a podcast for for years called The Great Work Podcast. Uh, um, And it was basically trying to interview people who write books and show up and then talk about their books on their show. And after a while, I found myself treading water a little bit because I felt like a bunch of these books were saying pretty similar stuff, plus or minus 5% of other similar books that I'd read about theirs. They're like, okay, I want a slightly different take on the Southwest Airlines story, but it's still the same basic principles. And I felt myself getting stuck in a rut and bored and actually not doing the conversation a great service because I wasn't showing up in, in the same way. And you know knowing that there are some kind of timeless principles around management and leadership and strategy or stuff that you cover in your wonderful podcast um how do you how do you stay engaged in this thinking when you're like, I'm just talking to this person about their similar take on it that I've had at least a hundred conversations about before
1: mm, yeah uh, the biggest thing is I talk to the people listening, mm and the the game changer for me, Michael, because I did struggle with this early on, the first four yeah. or five years of the of the show, what you just described was also my story. yeah, back and forth, some days, high motivation, low motivation. but it felt a little more repetitive at the beginning. And what changed was when we started the academy, yeah, and I started having real-time conversations with leaders who were listening to the show, putting into practice what they were learning, and then right. coming back and saying, Hey, here's what I'm still struggling with. Here's what's not working. Here's what I heard on that episode. And I tried and was either great or didn't work or was insufficient. And that for me has been huge because it wasn't the intention at all. When I started our academy for that to be R and D for me. And yet that's been one of the biggest benefits that's come out of it is I have, I hear in real time what works and what doesn't. And so for me, it is a regular practice of, let me see if I can answer to the best of my ability in this moment, something that I think people need, because it's what I'm hearing every day from Mm -hmm. the people we're working with and go find the author, the expert, whoever that would have an answer to that question, or at least a start. And then people coming back and saying, okay, that was great. And now I need this. (laughs) And then right. me going and I, I think of my work now as a, as an intersection yes. between the the academy like and I, the academy like the aggregate academy like higher education the researchers and the practitioners of mm. uh, facilitating that conversation of how do I help to get that wisdom that knowledge that the people have done the great like Wiz, Liz Wiseman for example who you've had on the show recently yeah. like the amazing research that she's done and to get that in the minds of today's leader who's out doing the work. That for me is super exciting. And I cannot wait to have conversations now most of the time because I'm okay. helping people solve a problem.
0: Yeah. It's not, not it's not you exploring an idea. It's you being of service to the people that you support.
1: Yes. Yes. And the other thing that I do, I think differently than a lot of other podcasters Yeah, is I decide in advance what the conversation is going to be about from a person's book or work. I love and that. I zero in on, I and mean, it's interesting, like I was talking about a, here, your show, two pages. Yeah. That is coaching for leaders. Right. Essentially is me deciding, okay, here are two or three or four pages of a person's book or their work or speaking right, right. engagement they did. And like, wow, that's the message people need and zeroing in on that I love that.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the purpose of this show it's 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 design is to disrupt people going through the usual talking points of a of a conversation yeah which honestly they're a bit bored by and i get bored by i'm like i need i need to have you come into your work and your life through a side door that you didn't even know was there and a different type of conversation unfolds from that um and that's helpful for me because it also keeps me on my toes i don't know what you're going to read in terms of the two pages so it's um it keeps me more interested and it just creates this kind of disruption to the to the usual chat
1: i i think that's one of the things that has helped the show get traction over the years both yours and mine in that People say I'm a good interviewer, and I'm always gracious for I'm always grateful for that that kind comment. But I think I'm I'm a good interviewer, but I'm not a great interviewer. Right. What's different though is I have I think the the real value is the work I've done in advance. Exactly. Of I've listened to the art of being to, a good
0: interviewer. <laughs> yeah, like yes. you've actually got an opinion. You're showing up with a direction and a journey to take people on.
1: Exactly. And I've done it through the lens of thinking about our Academy members and our listeners of like, Mm. what am I hearing right now? And then spending four or five hours thinking about a person's work and what are we going to zero in on? And just starting there, framing it there is so different than what most interviewers are doing that people walk away and like, oh, that was really useful. I can use this immediately today at work.
0: So- Tell me about How to Win Friends and Influence People. Why have you chosen this book for us?
1: Well, I worked for Dale Carnegie for 15 <laughs> years. And so uh-huh. I live and breathe <laughs> this book. Yeah. And I intentionally chose it because it's, it's done so much for me in helping r- upgrade my operating system for working with people. Right. And one of the best things I ever got to do in my career, Michael, and it'll probably be on my top five as long as I live, was getting to teach the Dale Carnegie course and taking this book and the principles of it. But of course, Carnegie was a, was brilliant at adult learning before anyone mm-hmm. else was doing it, of right. working with adults who were in business and in organizations of helping them to really apply it. And I saw the transformation happen again and again, night after night, because right. I would teach evening classes a lot, of people who would walk in with a chip on their shoulder or their boss said, hey, you got to go take this class and would walk out eight weeks later, 12 weeks later, yeah. and literally had changed the way they showed up in the workplace. And in some cases had amazing career transformations. And it's something okay. that Carnegie has done that I've never seen any other training company do right. in a way that was really life-changing for so many people. And yeah. I, I saw the power so many times that as I got into Carnegie, I have got to the book more and more over the years, and now years out of Carnegie, I'm still going back and referencing <laughs> the book almost every day, because the principles are so timeless.
0: What I, I want to jump, I want to find out the two pages you've selected for us, because knowing that this is such an influential book, my guess is you had to have some kind of dilemma around which pages you, you chose to read for us. But if I can be nosy, why did you stop working with Dale Carnegie, knowing how? You know, knowing that it was a top five career experience for you, coaching for leaders became too big. Okay,
1: was was the big answer? The big answer to that question. What a perfect answer! And so, at some point, I had to make a choice. And then it turned out right about the time that, um, that I was needing to make that choice, we were having a major client transition within oh. Carnegie of a account I'd worked with for years. And they decided to move on and do other things. And I was like, this is the time that's just naturally meant for me. to Yeah, yeah.
0: It's so great when a side hustle becomes a main hustle. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It doesn't happen that often, but it is the perfect transition, which is like, oh, this this little project I had, it's somehow grown to become big enough to sustain me. So you can just step graciously from one great experience to the next great experience.
1: Yeah, and even... It ended up being kind of a non-event when it actually happened because the transition had happened over years. But there was absolutely a period a couple of years before that where coaching for leaders had gotten big enough that I had to make the decision, am I going to put a lot more time and resources in this with the intention that it becomes my full-time thing? Or am I going to make a very conscious decision to not and keep this as a hobby? Because at some point, like, you, you appreciate this as an entrepreneur, Michael, like, you have to turn it into a business right. if you want if you're going to serve people well, and yeah. and I was great. I, uh, I was so excited to be able to do that, but it was a really conscious decision um, right. to do that, and and it turned out to be one that worked out beautifully.
0: Which two pages did you choose from the book?
1: Carnegie has thirty principles that he right. teaches in How to Win Friends and Influence People, and the principle that Of all of them that I think captures the heart of what Carnegie teaches is, um, it's listed as principle eight in the book, try honestly to see things from the other person's point of view. Right. And it's interesting you asking which pages I chose because I did struggle a bit over which ones to choose. And I remembered the words of one of my mentors when I first got working at Carnegie. He said, "The, the brilliance of Carnegie's writing and storytelling is you could literally open the book to any page and read two pages was literally what they told me at the start. Right, You could read two pages and you could get something that
0: you could use in your
1: life that day.
0: Right. I love that. Well, um, it has been... A long time since I read this book, and I'm not, you know, we talked about this before I hit record, but I'm like, now I'm thinking, have I actually even read this book, or is this one of those books where you're like, you don't even need to read it because it's so infused into the world now, and that the the principles just keep showing up in different ways, owned by different people who may not even be aware of their kind of their their Carnegie origins. Um, but Dave, over to you, reading um, principle eight from. Del Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Seeing
1: things through another person's eyes may ease tensions when personal problems become overwhelming. Elizabeth Novak of New South Wales, Australia was six weeks late with her car payment. On a Friday, she reported, I received a nasty phone call from the man who was handling my account informing me that if I did not come up with $122 by Monday morning, I could anticipate further action from the company. I had no way of raising the money over the weekend, so when I received his phone call first thing on Monday morning, I expected the worst. Instead of becoming upset, I looked at the situation from his point of view. I apologized most sincerely for causing him so much inconvenience and remarked that I must be his most troublesome customer as this was not the first time I was behind in my payments. His tone of voice changed immediately. And he reassured me that I was far from being one of his really troublesome customers. He went on to tell me several examples of how rude his customers sometimes were, how they lied to him, and often tried to avoid talking to him at all. I said, nothing. I listened and let him pour out his troubles to me. Then, without any suggestion from me, he said it didn't matter if I couldn't pay all the money immediately. It would be all right if I paid him $20 by the end of the month and made up the balance whenever it was convenient for me to do so. Tomorrow, before asking anyone to put out a fire or buy your product or contribute to your favorite charity, why not pause and close your eyes and try to think of the whole thing from another person's point of view. Ask yourself, why should he or she want to do it? True, this will take time, but it will avoid making enemies and will get better results and with less friction and less shoe leather. If, as a result of reading this book, You get only one thing, an increased tendency to think always in terms of the other person's point of view, and see things from that person's angle as well as your own. If you only get that one thing from this book, it may easily prove to be one of the stepping stones of your career. The principle is, try honestly to see things from the other person's point of view.
0: Wonderful, and I appreciate the kind of the nod to Australia there. <laughs> so thanks for that, of course. and also the nod to a time when, like, it's like a car payment was 120 bucks for the month. <laughs> I
1: know, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> there are some things that don't quite transfer after 100 sure. years, but exactly. <laughs> principles are the same.
0: Indeed. What What's the deep truth in this principle for you, Dave? Stop.
1: Pause. Take a moment to think and to get out of our own head and it is so hard to do Mm. in daily life when an employee's having a tough day when a customer's irate when you've just had the toughest situations you're dealing with to take 10 or 15 seconds and to think how is this other person approaching the situation And yet, when we can discipline ourselves to do that in those tough moments, when we feel our blood pressure rising, when we feel our anger coming up, the remarkable difference that it makes is tremendous. Mm. And I've heard that story that Carnegie told in that book literally thousands of times. (laughs) Not the same story, of course, but when people applied this in the courses and in coaching, of having this remarkable revelation, although it's really not remarkable when you think about it, but like approaching the conversation of how's the other person probably coming to it from this.
0: Do you have a story where this principle has made a shift for you?
1: I think the podcast is like a great example of this. Yeah. And it goes back to what I mentioned uh, a, a a bit ago. Yeah. The show was good for the first, three or four years, it was consistent. It was decent, but Mm -hmm. it didn't, it wasn't getting a ton of traction. Right. When it got traction is when I started talking to people and I don't mean (laughs) the guests, I mean the listeners and I would read emails and I would hear about problems. Mm. And then what I would do is start to think through, okay, when I hear this same situation two or three times, that's the next episode that I need to air is to answer right. that question. And okay. if you go back and look at all the numbers, like that's when the show really started to get traction
0: nice.
1: was when I made that shift to, this isn't about me deciding mm. who's, um, in fact, Liz Wiseman said it on your show a month ago or so that, the tendency for us to all look at the world through an N of one, right? Yeah. My experience defines The experience for everyone, and I'm going to just go with what
0: I am comfortable (laughs) with. My my truth is the universal truth. Right, right right. is is the universal right. And I've I've gotten I still fall
1: into that trap, but I've Mm. gotten better at that. Of now, I listen to what does the audience need, and that dictates what's next. And that's Mm. when the show really started getting traction.
0: There's some part of the world that's listening to this, Dave, and going, yeah. That's all well and good, that's nice. <laughs> but um, you know, the world, our countries, America, most vividly, is a pretty divided country at the moment, uh, a country where the ability to actually see the point of view of another person, another perspective feels further away rather than closer. Um, just wondering if this is a uh, an indulgence that only a few of us get to have or maybe the harder question is how do we knowing that there's algorithmic forces against us now helping yes. us create empathy yes how do we how do we how do we make this this principle something that we can operate by when when things are moving around us that we don't even notice don't even see yeah
1: I had Amanda Ripley on the show recently, who wrote this beautiful book called High Conflict, right? And looking at conflict and just all the complexities that go with it. And one of the things she points out in the book is that we all think we're more polarized than we actually are. Mm. When you look at the research of Democrats, Republicans, uh, whatever binary poll you want to do that that lens through, and and we see it so vividly mm. in the algorithm, as you mentioned, Facebook, social media, all of the things that have caused us to polarize so much yeah. more blatantly than we ever, that, that aren't even necessarily reflecting actual truth, but we see it and so it feels real and it becomes right. real. Yeah. And I, I don't have an answer to the algorithm question. I think that is the struggle on, of Dave. our time. Yeah. I mean, this is like a huge, huge problem. It's right. And it affects every aspect of our society. What I do know is I can do better one-on-one. Yeah. So it's the, um, the holidays are coming up as we're recording this. Yeah. And, um, I, um, uh, uh, I, I, one of the uh, guests who was on our show a while back said, you know, there's the. Every time you have a holiday get together, there's always that uh, crazy uncle that shows up, and has that belief that's totally <laughs> different than. Yeah. And, and of course, as as he pointed out, like sometimes we're the crazy uncle too, right? <laughs> for everyone else, um, but he had this um, he had this wonderful invitation for us of um, rather than starting the fight, is to ask the question. When did you first come to that conclusion? Mm. Not because we're trying to um, say we agree or to um, legitimize the position necessarily, but just from a place of understanding. Right. And to me, that's Carnegie one hundred and one. Yeah, is can I, as an individual, in spite of the algorithm, in spite of the news? spite of everything I see online, yeah. still make the choice consciously to look at things from the other person's perspective and say, when did you come to this conclusion? Yeah. And to listen. And when we can do that one-on-one, it's easier to do it inside the organization and with teams and in coaching mm-hmm. and in all the things that managers and leaders do, but it starts with one person, like everything.
0: You know, when I think about this, Dave, what I notice in myself is <laughs> how often I want to run away from these moments. Um, you know, I sit at a conference and um, they did this kind of big collective exercise. A group of 300 of us had to do something within 45 minutes. Mm. And, um, you know, it started off nicely enough, but it quickly <laughs> deteriorated and became, um, you know, Lord of the Flies. <laughs> kind of thing it was just horrible and and I basically left before the end because I couldn't I couldn't sit with the the discomfort of it all um and and then I was like intrigued at my own cowardice is too strong a word but I was definitely running away from something there I'm wondering what have you learned about being able to stay present to discomfort well sometimes
1: just to do what i just did which is to stop yeah and just listen for what happens next the thing that i've learned in as i think back on the last several years of things that have seemed uncomfortable and the most apparent ones are interviewing people that i never imagined i'd be talking to and prepping interviews with really big name people yeah is just doing it more. Right. Like taking the time to put myself in those situations and to feel the discomfort. And like that book from years ago said, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan <laughs> Jeffers. I love that book. Right. Um, that has made it less scary. Mm. And and then just listening and mm. showing up and seeing, because sometimes the other thing is I I try not to put too much pressure on myself, Michael, and this is easier said than done, but I of like on my better days, like walking away from something like you just described, like going to a conference and getting an event. Like if I added nothing of value in this moment and maybe even took something away from the value because Mm. of my lack of ability to engage, participate, not show up in the way I'd want to. Right. What can I do upon reflection that could be learned from this? That I would do better next time, that I might teach others to do? Um, I, I, I... I've sort of come to this weird place that like when something really weird or strange <laughs> or awful happens to me, I do think in the back of my head, well, at least there's probably like some inspiration here for an episode someday. <laughs> right. <exactly. laughs> right. Um, so, Everything's
0: material. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's, there's, there's that piece of just like trying to let go of, Mm -hmm. And not get too caught up into like I try to take my work really seriously, but I try not to take myself very seriously. Like, right. Nobody's life is going to be materially different if they listen to my podcast or not. Like, for me to like remember that, remind myself of that. Um, but like, how can I just iterate in small ways of coming away from a situation? I have no idea if I'm answering your question or not, but that's just what's coming up for me when you ask. Well,
0: what what I like about what you're saying, Dave, is is. what it is is being kind to yourself around those moments of failure or struggle or difficulty or where you fail to live up to some version of yourself that you hold as ideal yeah but if you don't stop and go well that was interesting <laughs> how curious how do i learn from my failure um then then you're missing the opportunity because actually it's in that moment to pause and go what am i taking from this what would i do differently next time what does this tell me about who I am and what I, what my capacity is? Yeah. Um, those all become interesting questions. And, you know, if I think about this conference, I'm more likely to be able to sit next time and watch the whole thing unravel <laughs> Yeah. and just go, look, this is important for me to be present to this because watching this struggle And this is like 300 people, but we're all kind of, you know, we're all, we were pretty homogeneous in terms of a way of seeing the world. This wasn't a Fox News versus some, you know, lefty green group. It was all of us who were there around, or we want a better world. We had a simple but difficult task and, and we weren't collectively able to achieve it. Yeah. We had 45 minutes tonight. You have to make one recommendation to this 10 year old girl. About one thing that we collectively could do to make this world more environmentally better, hmm. and we just failed to to do that. Yeah. Just turned into a whole bunch of people grabbing the microphone, going, "No, this is this. Listen to me. This is what I think we should be doing." And it's just like, oh man, uh, interesting. Uh, it interesting. was it it's was hard to watch, um, but interesting for me to go. Actually, I didn't watch it. I didn't sit through it, and. Actually, it would have been useful to sit with the discomfort of that. Yeah, perhaps. Um, it it
1: makes me think of two things. What you just mm. said. Um, one of them goes back to something I think I said earlier. Like I I I really feel like a slow learner on so many things. Right. And uh, one of my friends, um, John Corcoran, interviewed me for an article he was doing years ago on how to make a great first impression, and he called me up. And I said, well, that's funny you called me because I I really think of myself as a person who mostly doesn't make a good first impression (laughs) (laughs) in a lot of situations. Um, And so we talked about that. And I I, I tend to do better work when I've reflected on something. Right. I mean, the irony of me having worked at Carnegie and thinking on your feet and all those things that Carnegie teaches, but um, for me, I do better if I've thought about something Coming yeah. out of a situation, like, how can I iterate yeah. for the next time? And then the, the other thing that made me think of is, how do I then set up the environment? Because I find myself in the position now professionally of, I'm not the person with answers, but I'm the person who is creating mm. the framework of an environment where people show up yeah. and making that a safe place. Right. And what can I do to iterate that makes this a better place to show up where people are able to then engage and solve problems. And so I'm often Hmm. looking at it through that lens too, of whether it's me or someone else like, oh, this didn't work. What can I do better next time to make this a safer place where people would show up and feel like they could move forward?
0: Let me use that as a way of asking about the Coaching for Leaders Academy. How do you feel that is structured and how does it unfold in a way that offers people a different way to engage with this whole idea of leadership. It's totally
1: different than I think what people are used to when they come into a leadership development program. And in fact I need to warn people in advance (laughs) when they apply, they mostly get this, but once in a while someone doesn't. Is there's a ton of structure, but there's almost no traditional curriculum. Mm. People are used to coming into a program and saying, okay, on week two, we're going to talk about feedback. And in week four, we're going to talk about delegation. And I tell folks when we start, we're going to talk about all those things. I just don't know when. Because the framework of this is, let's create a vision of where we all want to go individually for two to three years in our careers as leaders. And then we're doing problem solving along the way. And so people bring problems to the conversations that they're dealing with in real time. All of the contextual stuff comes up. All of the delegation, writing a vision, being more coach like. Mm-hmm. Your name comes up every day in my life, Michael. I can't <laughs> I can't tell you how many times like the coaching habit comes up in these conversations because everyone's read it in yeah. our in our academy. And but it's in the context of a real situation. Yeah. Cause I think we learn best when we're struggling with something. Mm. Not because it's week four and it says we have to talk about delegation on week four. I love that. And so that's what's different about it is there's a ton of structure, but there's no curriculum. Mm. The curriculum is the real situations everyone's dealing with because people have plenty of problems without me creating case studies. Yeah. Um, the, exactly. And the real problems are better because we don't have simple <laughs> answers. Yeah. And But then we get six or seven people together who all have had different levels of experience and different organizations and industries. and. That ends up surfacing, not the answer, but mm. the next step, which is what mostly people need.
0: That's such a wonderful, essential insight, which is we learn best when we're struggling with something. Um, how do you keep stepping out to the edge where you, so that you are still struggling with something? Because one of the things that happens for me and i'm going to guess for you as well is actually you get pretty you get pretty good at stuff (laughs) and also you know when you hit a certain type of period in your life you have kind of set up structures which is like most of what i do i don't struggle in (laughs) because i've eliminated all the struggle stuff and i've uh... filled my my plate with the stuff where i i have competence or even mastery um so i'm curious to know how you find struggle so that you can keep learning I picked up guitar earlier this year, and I've I've. I should uh, I should like play you a chord or two of my ukulele. Oh, you have your guitar right there. Nice. It's it's a ukulele.
1: Oh, that's right. You play ukulele. I forgot.
0: Yeah, it's um.
1: I have played in quotation marks guitar for twenty some years and taken a couple lessons here and there, but never practiced consistently. And in the middle of quarantine and all that earlier this year in February, I said. I'm going to start practicing right. every day, five minutes, 10 minutes, and really go through the learning and the struggle of starting with guitar anew. <laughs> and it's painful.
0: Oh, so painful. I mean, it's
1: literally painful on your fingers. <laughs> yeah. And then it's psychologically painful because yeah. you'll go days and you do the same thing. And you know, like you trust, like right. you, you take the courses and I've got the apps and all that. I'm like, I know this is the right thing. I know I'm focusing on the right thing. Yeah. And I see I I I see people play guitar in the world, so I know it's possible, right? <laughs> but um, but I'm not seeing it myself. Yeah. And i I might go weeks practicing something and I feel like I'm getting worse. Oh, I and, know what you mean. Yeah. And then like the other thing is like, especially like in the spring when I was like really getting I was trying to focus on chords, is what was interesting is like one of the learning moments that I noticed was there's a point in starting to play guitar. And I'm sure this is true for any stringed instrument where, you know, you're just trying to like play the right chord, right? And I noticed that all of a sudden there came a day when I was about to strum the, uh, I would place my fingers on the chord and I'd about to strum the the strings, and I would know that it was going to be wrong. Right. And I would still strum, strangely, like my brain would like still go through the (laughs) hand motions, but I knew before the sound reached my ears that it was going to be wrong. Right. And I was like. That's really interesting mm. that I start to see my mistakes, but I, I and I know I'm about to make a mistake, and yet I still do
0: it. yeah,
1: and I thought about that and then our conversations about leadership in our academy sessions, and I thought, how often that comes up right. where someone right. says, "I knew this was the wrong thing and, <laughs> and I still did it and and they see that as yeah. a mistake, right, and it is. But I've also now learned a new, yes, I've learned a new this year, like seeing that in real time, the mistake is one of the most important
0: parts of the learning process. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, it's kind of, it's that move from unconsciously incompetent to consciously competent. Yes. And you're like, oh, now I'm seeing the, (laughs) I'm seeing the idiocy. All right. That's good. Maybe I can work on that. I love that. Yeah, maybe and you and I need that, to get together and put a band together about people who can't <laughs> play stringed instrument.
1: Maybe, and and that's also where a lot of like times we stop, right? Yeah, like oh, like not only is this hard, but now I see myself screwing up so much. I'm on anything, right? Leadership, mm-hmm. guitar, whatever. Insert mm-hmm. parenting. Insert insert now and here, um, and so that has helped me to. Recognize when I see that to be even more encouraging than I was right. before.
0: there has been a wonderful conversation, which I'm not at all surprised by. Um, for people, well, actually, let me ask you this as my final question, because this is the question I'm most typically asked right at the end. What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between us?
1: I just read your book. How to begin. Oh, good. (laughs) And you talk about this show in your book. Mm -hmm. And you talk about your learning journey of being a podcast host and what you're doing differently. And what, having interviewed you now half a dozen times over the years, and you've interviewed me a couple of times, um, what's different about this conversation? and also the conversations I listened to previously on the show from a month or two ago, Liz Wiseman, yep. Juliet Foon, um, what's different about you is the space and the quiet. Mm. And I'm used to you jumping in more and being much more like driving the conversation, like in a wonderful, beautiful, energetic way. But it's a different experience this time around. And it's very much in alignment with what you wrote in the book of I'm gonna I'm going to step back more. I'm mm-hmm. going to um I'm gonna be the, really the thoughtful question asker that I I know I can be. And I just one, I wanna acknowledge that. And then secondly, I want to thank you for being so open in that book about some of your own struggles and CEO transition, all the things you talk about in the book, um, because what for those who know you and your work, what a wonderful window into seeing your journey and your learning and you continuing to grow. And so all that to say, thank you.
0: Let me just pick up one small but really powerful thing that Dave talked about. To learn something... You need to make mistakes. But the first step forward isn't to not making mistakes. It's to knowing that you're about to make a mistake. I kind of think of it as the first glimpse of mastery, even though mastery itself is not yet available. It's moving from, I realized I made a mistake after I made it, to I can see I'm about to make a mistake, even if I can't yet correct for it. It's just a reminder again that the courage to be incompetent is how you create the waft and weave of mastery. I think it's why Dave after well over 500 episodes as a podcast host still embodies this sense of meticulous preparation, a curious mind and sitting in the position of the student rather than the teacher. If you love my conversation with Dave and I certainly did um two other recommendations and i'm recommending them because first of all they're two wonderful people but also because they have been interviewed by dave as well so you might want to go and check out dave's podcast and his conversation with these two folks first is liz wiseman and uh you know liz is a hero of mine um her book Multipliers is a classic for sure and she has a fairly new book out called impact players as well and the other is my friend juliet fund who is so smart on how to be productive, how to have boundaries, Um, and we recorded that podcast in celebration of a new book that she has out in the world. If you're after more of Dave, and you should be, um, you want to check out coachingforleaders.com. That gives you access to his podcast, it gives you details about his academy, and everything else you might possibly want about Dave Stakowiak. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the reviews. Thank you for passing the episode on. You know, if, if I'm asking for one thing, it's probably that, which is think of somebody who'd like to listen to this and suggest it to them. There are a bazillion podcasts. We're all competing for your attention. I heard somebody say you can only have seven podcasts that are your favorites and I'm hoping this is your favorite podcast and I'm hoping it will be other people's favorite podcasts as well. So if you think somebody go, this could be a favorite podcast for them, please do pass the recommendation on. Thank you. You're awesome. You're doing great.